Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is the word of the Lord. We are called to receive God's word uh, later in Psalm 119, we're told, as a light to our paths. How do we keep God's commandments? How do we walk in God's way? It's by holding fast to God's word, by following the light of God's word. Uh, this, this is the season of Epiphany, and last Sunday was uh, Epiphany Sunday. Uh, we commemorated the, the wise men who followed the star to the place where Jesus uh, was to be found. They followed the star of the, the light of the glory of the Lord. Uh, that shone above the place where God's presence now dwelt on earth in the person of his Son. The wise men followed the light of God's glory, and we too are called to follow the light to Jesus, and the light that we are given primarily is the light of God's word. We are given the light of God's word to follow and to find there the presence of our Savior. That light leads us to Jesus, and that light cleanses our way. That light shows us how to live as uh, a pure, uh, righteous child of God? How can a young man keep his way by guarding it? According to God's word. We are called to follow that light, but as, as you know, uh, we often fail to follow that light. We often walk in darkness. We often walk in, in self-deceit. And when we do, the good news is that there is grace. There is forgiveness for us as we come to confess our sins. And so... Please kneel with me as we confess our sins this morning. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> the last several times that I've been with you, we've been spending time in the Gospel of John, but this week uh, I thought it would be good for us to consider the baptism of Jesus. This is, the, as we said, the Sunday in the church year uh, when the church traditionally commemorates the baptism of Christ by John in the Jordan. Last Sunday was the commemoration of the, uh, the Epiphany, one that we uh, read of and considered the uh, the wise men, the magi who came from the east and brought gifts to Jesus. Epiphany is all about the, the manifestation of the identity of, of the Christ, the identity of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, as the Son of God. Uh, Jesus was shown to be the one who is bringing the light to the Gentiles in the uh, visit of the magi, the wise men from the east. He was shown to be the true king, uh, we saw in 
Uh, in that reading last week, the conflict between the, the coming kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of, of Herod. Herod is, if you remember, uh, when he hears the news from the Magi, from the wise men, that there's a king born in Bethlehem, he is, uh, he's troubled, he's angry, he's troubled because he's, he's supposed to be the king of Israel, right? But, but Jesus is coming as a rival king, he's coming as the true king of Israel. Jesus is manifest as the, the true king. In our lesson this morning, the gospel lesson this morning, and in the, uh, what we'll be considering in our sermon, uh, the identity of Jesus is further shown in his baptism. Uh, when Jesus goes to the Jordan River and is, uh, begins his ministry being baptized by John, uh, the baptism of Jesus manifests his identity to those around, uh, to John and to uh, all those who are gathered, uh, and to us as we consider in the gospel lesson uh, who Jesus is. His baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. It's his ordination as Israel's priest. This morning, we'll consider the significance of John the Baptist's ministry, what takes place in Jesus' baptism, and how his baptism informs our understanding of our own place and our own relationship with God, our own baptism, our own identity. But first of all, John's baptism uh, is, figure, is, is picturing for us a return from exile. What is John's ministry? Uh, what's the point of John's ministry? John is uh, leading Israel in a return from exile. Mark opens his gospel by looking back to the words of the prophet Isaiah to a people uh, in exile. The words that we hear in the beginning of Mark, uh, we, we heard just, just recently in Advent. John the Baptist is a major figure in the season of Advent, and, uh, but his, his act of baptizing Jesus is one of the events that's, uh, that's focused on in Epiphany. But we, uh, these words that open the Gospel of Mark are written to a people in exile, to Israel in, in exile. The people of Israel and Judah were taken into exile as discipline for their sin, and Isaiah now announces in chapter 40 of Isaiah deliverance from exile. And that deliverance takes the form of forgiveness of sins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Israel was sent into exile because of her sin, and Isaiah now announcing deliverance from exile is announcing that their sin is being dealt with. To be delivered from exile is to have your sin dealt with, to have your sin forgiven, covered. John the Baptist is proclaiming a Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, we're told. And as he's doing this, Mark tells us, in the wilderness. <clears throat> Typologically, the, the wilderness in the Bible is a place of exile. The wilderness as a place of exile, uh, of judgment for sin, is something that's woven into Israel's self-identity. If you remember, after the exodus from Egypt, God leads his people to the promised land, yet they refuse to enter. Remember, there's, there's giants in the land, and they, they lack the faith to, to enter, to trust God and to uh, battle the giants, to trust God to fight their battle for them. And as judgment for their grumbling and their disbelief, that generation wanders in the wilderness 40 more years. And at the end of those 40 years, God brings his people under Joshua's leadership across the Jordan and into the land. Israel's exile in Babylon and 
Judah's exile in Assyria lasted 70 years, followed by a return to the land and a rebuilt temple. However, though, though the people are back in the land, though the people have, in a sense, returned from exile uh, in, uh, after those 70 years, <clears throat> they're still in a real, in a theological sense, they're still in exile. Uh, they, uh, though they're geographically in the land, they're still slaves, we read in, in Ezra 9. They rebuild the temple, but just as uh, we, when we saw the, the tabernacle inaugurated, the glory of the Lord descended upon the tabernacle. We saw the, the light of the Lord's glory descend. When, the, when Solomon uh, constituted the temple, inaugurated the temple in Jerusalem, we saw the glory of the Lord descend upon the holy place. They rebuild this temple. Uh, they're, they're acting faithfully rebuilding this temple, but we don't see the same kind of glory of the Lord descend upon this temple. Uh, there's still a sense in which the people are still in exile. Their, their sin has not fully been dealt with. There's still a sense of enslavement, of, of exile taking place. The promises of return are re really being fulfilled, uh, but the fullness of God's outpouring of the Spirit is still to come. Daniel has shown this in his vision. Though the people are going to return, they're spiritually not ready, Daniel is told. The exile will be stretched out another 490 years. If we do the math, that leads us right about to the ministry of Jesus. Israel will be awaiting the new exodus until the Messiah comes. So what's John the Baptist doing then in the wilderness? He's declaring to the people that they are, in fact, still in exile, and those who are coming to him for baptism those who are coming out to the wilderness are acknowledging that truth and are confessing that they are in sin and that they need deliverance. They're confessing that they need a new exodus. And here's John preparing the way of the Lord. And the way is prepared by leading the people to repentance. John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because he's leading them to a new exodus. We're at another water-crossing event a new Israel is being formed. Remember, Israel is formed through the deliverance from Egypt as they cross the Red Sea. Israel is, uh, their relationship with God is renewed after their time in the wilderness as they cross the Jordan into the land. And now there's another water crossing event, another crossing of the Jordan. Uh, John is leading his people uh, to baptism in the Jordan. He's forming a new Israel. Uh, God is forming a new Israel out of uh, his people. But not only a new Israel, just as God's spirit hovered over the waters in the creation of the world, uh, if you remember in Genesis 1, God's spirit is hovering over the waters, so God's spirit now is over the waters in Jesus' baptism, as Jesus inaugurates not only a new Israel, but a new creation. <clears throat> John is in the wilderness, leading, his leading the people of the Lord to a new exodus, leading them out of exile into, uh, into the promise of God. Understanding that, sorry, Israel's new exodus happens then in the person of Jesus. Jesus himself is, you see, Israel personified. Jesus himself is faithful Israel. Understanding that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, uh, why, why does Jesus need to receive it? Well, one important thing to note is that this was not the normal baptism that John was administering. John was administering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he describes his baptism that way, as a baptism of repentance 
uh, baptism with water. Uh, but in, in verse 7 and 8, John speaks of the one coming after him, and he contrasts Christ's baptism, the baptism that the Messiah will give, with his own. John's is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but the, the Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit. But what do we see then when, when uh, John baptizes Jesus? Well, we see the Holy Spirit descend upon him, don't we? We see the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. This is the first of a new kind of baptism. This isn't John's normal baptism that he was administering. This is the first of the new kind of baptism that he tells of uh, the Christ giving. This is an outpouring of the Spirit. Well, secondly, Jesus receives baptism because he's taking up the role of Israel. He's Israel's Messiah. He's the anointed one of Yahweh. Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Jesus is Israel personified. We see this in Isaiah's servant songs. In Isaiah 42 through 43, Israel is spoken of as, uh, as an individual in a sense. Israel is uh, being addressed as the servant of the Lord, where God moves from addressing Israel as a whole, as a whole nation, to addressing Israel the individual in whom the whole people is represented. Is the servant of Israel, the, sorry, the servant of the Lord, uh, would bear the sins of the whole nation, would live as Israel it was intended to live, faithfully before Yahweh, and shining the light to the nations. Consider Isaiah 42, verse, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then skipping down to verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you see, Jesus is Israel personified. He is living as Israel is, was called to live. He's living uh, as Israel faithfully. Immediately after, he, uh, immediately after this, he'll be driven into the wilderness for 40 days. But rather than grumbling and rebelling in the wilderness, he will remain faithful. He will pass the test. He will remain faithful in the wilderness. As Israel, Jesus is the recipient, Paul tells us, of all of God's promises to Israel. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is Israel personified. Jesus comes to be baptized by John as Israel, receiving God's blessing, receiving God's anointing. Jesus is Israel personified, but Jesus is also Israel's God in person. Mark quotes the first line of Malachi chapter 3. There we read in Malachi 3, 1, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. A part of the expectation of the new exodus that Israel was waiting for was the coming of Yahweh, the coming of the Lord, the coming of Israel's God to his people. When God comes, 
He comes to judge, and he comes to deliver. His coming is always twofold. His coming is to judge the, uh, the wicked, to judge those who are oppressing his people. And his coming is, uh, he comes to deliver. He comes to vindicate. He comes to redeem the faithful, to redeem his people. Jesus is Israel's God, and he now comes visiting Israel to judge the unfaithful and to deliver the remnant through his death and his resurrection. One of the things that we see happening here in the baptism of Jesus is a uniting, the uniting of heaven and earth. And this happens, the uniting of heaven and earth happens in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus is Israel, and he is Israel's God. Jesus is, on a larger scale, uh, the uniting of uh, God's creation, of God's people, uh, the uniting of earth with heaven. Jesus is the union of Israel and her God, and he's the union of heaven and earth. When Jesus is baptized, Mark tells us that after he comes up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. In Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, we're told this happened while Jesus was praying. And perhaps we can speculate that he was praying the words of Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 1, where we read, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. On, the, on day two of the creation week, uh, going back to creation again, just as we saw the Spirit hovering above the waters, on day two of the creation week, God separated the waters below from the waters above. And in between, he, uh, he placed the firmament, the division between the heavens and the earth. God places a, a visual heaven in the firmament on, on day four when he fills it with the sun, uh, the moon, and the stars. Interestingly, this is the only day on which God does not pronounce what was made good. Of course, it's not that, the, not that it's bad, God created it, but it does seem that it wasn't intended to be permanent. God's intention all along was for heaven and earth to be brought together, to be united. This division between heaven and earth was not intended to be forever. However, man's sin, in a sense, freezes this division. As we move on through, uh, uh, through the scriptures, we see that these waters above become impenetrable, in a sense. Ezekiel sees this expanse, this firmament, and he describes it as a, a crystal sea. In Revelation, John enters through uh, what he says is a, a sea of glass. It's like the firmament, this uh, watery division has frozen over because of man's sin, and there's uh, no more uh, a way between heaven and earth. There's no more access between heaven and earth. Ezekiel prophesies, though, that Yahweh will sprinkle clean water on the people from on high and pour out his spirit from uh, pour out his spirit upon them in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. John, in Revelation 15, sees the saints pass through the, sa the sea of glass with a song of Moses on their lips. See, the goal of redemption was always the marrying of God's realm with man's. The goal of redemption is the uniting of heaven and earth. And now in Jesus' baptism, God is punching through that sea of glass. God's breaking a hole in the firmament and pouring his spirit down upon humanity. Jesus is opening up the way for humanity into God's presence, and God is pouring out his spirit upon his Son. The term that, that uh, Mark uses is significant as well. He doesn't just say uh, that the firmament, that uh, the heavens were opened. Uh, he doesn't just say that 
uh, a window was, was open so we could see through. Oh, he says the heavens were torn open. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the heavens are torn open in his baptism. Mark uses that same word later on at the cross. He completes the process of this tearing open between the heavens and the earth in his cross. The firmament was visualized in the tabernacle. Remember, there's a veil between the uh, a veil before the most holy place. <clears throat> in chapter 15 of Mark, verse 38, Mark uses the same term, uh, this tearing, to describe what, what takes place on the cross. Jesus uh, gives up his life on the cross, and the veil, the curtain, the temple curtain, is torn open. Jesus' death is opening the way for us into the most holy place. See, the, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the uh, most holy place uh, was a picture of God's throne room presence in heaven. And there's a, a veil, a curtain. We, we can't access that. The, in the temple liturgy, the, uh, the high priest could go in there once a year. But if you were just a, a layman in Israel, you, you couldn't get there. You couldn't go in there. Uh, we saw people who tried to overstep their bounds in Israel's history, and, and there were severe consequences. Uh, we, we didn't have access to God's throne room presence before. But Jesus changes that. And we see that pictured in his baptism. Jesus is opening up access to God's throne room presence. The heavens are being torn open in Jesus' baptism. He's going to complete that process on the cross when the curtain, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, uh, where God's presence dwells, is torn open. Jesus opens up the way for us into God's presence. Jesus is Israel and he's Israel's God. So too he is man and he's man's creator in one. Jesus' incarnation, his baptism, his death, and his, and his resurrection are bringing about the reconciliation of God and man in the person of Jesus. So what's going on so far is uh, John is leading his people. John is leading Israel in a new exodus. John's preparing the way uh, for Jesus to bring about a new exodus. Uh, Jesus is bringing about a new exodus, but it's a greater exodus. It's what was always pictured uh, in the exodus, God's people being brought into his presence. Jesus is opening up the way for his people to come into the presence of God. Well, Jesus' baptism is significant for us to understand not only Jesus' identity, not only who Jesus is, but uh, who, who we are, who his disciples are, who we are as his people. We, are, uh, we receive the baptism that Jesus brings. John tells us his, his baptism that he offered was different from the baptism that is going to be offered uh, by Jesus. It's different from Christian baptism. Uh, John Calvin uh, spoke of there really only being one baptism. When, uh, when he talks about Christian baptism, the baptism that, that you receive, uh, the baptism that we see uh, when someone's being brought into the church, uh, Calvin said there's, there's really only one baptism. We all are participating, are united to, to the baptism of Jesus. And when we see Jesus being baptized, we see uh, three particular gifts being given. And those gifts are the gifts that we share in as God's people. The first one we've, we've just discussed, the opening of the heavens. When Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn open. Access uh, between heaven and earth is opened. When we are baptized, the heavens are being opened to us. 
we're baptized with water from above. John tells us, uh, the, uh, the Apostle John, in, in John 3 we read that we're being baptized with water from above. To be given access to the sanctuary means that you are a priest. In the letter of Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that uh, we, are, uh, we are brought into the, a new priesthood. We are brought in as priests who have access to God's throne room presence. We have access to the heavenlies. We have access to the most holy place in Christ. The heavens are torn open in Jesus' baptism. Uh, what else do we see? Uh, we see the, uh, the heavens being torn open, and then the Spirit des- descends upon him like a dove. We are baptized uh, with the Spirit, we're told. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, so John gives, sorry, so, so God gives his Spirit to us at our baptism. We see this as the church is, is inaugurated in, in the uh, book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, as God's people are baptized, the Spirit is being poured out upon them. We receive the fullness of the gift of the Spirit. And what else happens? The heavens are opened, the Spirit is poured out, and there's a voice heard from the heavens. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The voice of the Father calls out over Jesus at his baptism, declaring uh, God's fatherly love towards Jesus, God's fatherly pleasure towards him. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. As God brings us into his fold, God brings us into the church, God unites us to his son, we hear that same voice. We are united to Jesus, and we are adopted by the Father. We are adopted as God's beloved sons. We are God's, peop- we are God's children upon whom he pours out his fatherly love and delight. We are God's people in whom he is well pleased. Jesus has declared the Son of God at his baptism. Of course, he is eternally the Son of God, but here he takes on the particular kingly and messianic sonship uh, that, we, uh, that we've read about uh, in the Old Testament. We are baptized. When we are baptized, we are brought into the family of God as well. We are adopted as sons. Really, as we saw, there, there's just one baptism, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. And this one baptism is the baptism of Jesus recorded here. All other baptisms are a participation in the baptism of Christ. When someone is brought forward in, uh, here in, in the church to be baptized, uh, what, what you see with your eyes is, is fairly simple. You see uh, the minister or an elder, uh, take, if, if it's a child, take the child in their arms, uh, sprinkle water on the child's head uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and, and that child's baptized. What you don't see happening uh, What's invisible to us, but what we, are, what we know now by faith is that the heavens are being opened to us as God's people who are united to his son. The heavens are opened. Uh, the, the veil is being torn open. The spirit is being poured out as a dove upon his people. God's fatherly voice is calling out, adopting this child, adopting this new disciple, saying, you are my beloved son, you are my child, and, and you I am well pleased. This is good news for us. The, the baptism of Christ is good news for us. This is, uh, Mark tells us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And uh, one of the first parts of the gospel of Jesus, as recorded by Mark, is in fact very good news for us because we are baptized into Christ. In our baptism, uh, in our baptism we receive these gifts of Christ. You are, 
uh, given access to the Father. You have access to his throne. Uh, you don't have to worry about whether or not you have the right to come in and, 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 uh, and speak before God in his presence. You don't have to worry about whether or not he'll hear your prayer. You have access. You are brought in as a priest, as a priest before God. Uh, you have the spirit. You are given the spirit to make you new to, so you can walk in newness of life. You are adopted by the Father. Uh, you are God's beloved Son. In, in you, he is well pleased. He, you have the pleasure of the Father upon you. Of course, as God's beloved children, in whom he's well pleased, there are times when we act in ways that are not pleasing to the Father, but as any good father, he lovingly brings us back. He lovingly corrects us, rebukes us, and we come before him not as, uh, not as those who, who have to, to fear uh, his, his wrath any longer, but as children who come before a father knowing that we've, we've wronged our father and we can come and trust that he will forgive us. You have God's, uh, you've been adopted as God's child and you have his fatherly pleasure upon you. This baptism is good news, but what do we see happen immediately after Jesus' baptism? Mark tells us, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And we read in the other Gospels what happens there. Jesus is being tempted. He's being tested by Satan. And Jesus prevails in his wilderness temptation. Jesus prevails, uh, clinging to God's word. You are baptized into Jesus. Your baptism uh, is... Uh, like Jesus' baptism, you're adopted as God's child. But you know what? You're going to be driven out into the wilderness too. You, and you know this. Uh, you've experienced this. Uh, you are given the gifts of the Spirit. Each, uh, we, as we go through our Christian life, there are times when, uh, when we feel we can you know, we really sense God's close presence. We feel like we're growing in our discipleship. And it seems like often those, those times of really significant growth are almost always followed by renewed challenges, by renewed temptations, renewed testing. This is uh, what happens to Jesus here. It's true in our own experience as well. You are God's disciple. You are, you are a disciple of Christ, and you are going to have times in the wilderness. You're going to have times when you are driven out and tested by Satan. But as God's children, as the disciples of Jesus, we see the way that Jesus responds to these temptations as a model for our response as well. Trust in the good news that you are God's child. God loves you. He is well pleased in you. And as you go through various trials and testings, whether it's temptations to sin, whether it's uh, suffering in your walk with Christ, the trials of loss or grief in your life, cling to God's word just as Jesus does in his own trial, in his own temptation. Cling to his word and uh, cling to his word to guide you, to give you light on your path. We are called like Jesus to be faithful in the midst of temptation and trial. We are given the spirit just as Jesus is. And by the spirit we can persevere, not in our own strength, but by the strength that he gives. So in conclusion, the baptism of Jesus shows Israel and it shows the world that the heavens and earth are being united, reconciled in Jesus. Access to God's throne room will be restored in the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that reconciliation happens in union with him. Uh, we have full access to the Father in him. 
we have the same spirit by whom we walk, and in him we are called to persevere in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us. We thank you that you have called us out as your children, that you unite us to your Son as we uh, trust in him by faith, that you uh, baptize us with your Spirit into union with Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would receive the gifts that you give, that our adoption as your children, uh, that we would walk as children of light, that we would walk as children of God, that as we uh, receive your Spirit, so we would walk in him in newness of life, and that we would walk as, as priests, that we would be ministering uh, in your presence and bringing your gospel, bringing your good news, your gifts to the world around us. Father, grant us grace to persevere as we encounter various trials and testings. Uh, help us to cling to your word as your son has done and shown us. And in his name we pray. Ecclesiastes 12, first verse is, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. As Solomon ends Ecclesiastes, he emphasizes the brevity of life. Given the fact that we are going to die soon, that life will end sooner than we expect, Solomon says that we should remember our Creator in the days of our youth. Why is this? Why should we specifically remember the Creator in the days of our youth? Because God is the Creator that has filled the world with beauty, with pleasures, with gifts for our use, for our use. We live life to the fullest when we recognize that every pleasure, every joy we have is a gift from God, our Creator. The table is one of the places where we are called to remember the Creator. The table is a memorial to the death of Jesus, as Jesus himself said. As a memorial of the death of Jesus, it is a memorial of the infinite generosity, the mercy, and the goodness of God. This table is a weekly reminder that God has given us food in this world to eat and to drink and to rejoice before him. So as you receive the bread and the wine, remember that we serve a God of goodness who sends rain on the just and the unjust. Remember that we serve a God who gave his only son to die for us and also with him freely gives us bread and wine and all things. Invited to the table, are all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ, his body, the church. When we drink the, bread, when we drink the wine and eat the bread, together we're acknowledging that we're sinners. We're without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. And we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So I welcome you to come. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.